Yeah, that's true. But uh, I'll, I'll have a car. It'll just be like the old days. Just, uh... Welcome back to the Poplar Tapes. Uh, my name is Keegan Irish, and I'm here with Alex Bose and Mike Fong. Um, yeah, so how are you guys been doing? Everything going well in your in your lives? Yeah, no, um, things are going uh, surreal. Things have been very surreal, especially with um, protest movements that are going. There's this kind of cyclical nature to them where we find ourselves at the, at the same kind of moment continually, especially right now uh, as we're recording um, Hurricane Laura is making its way through the states. The RNC was meeting this week. And again, there's just sustained protest movements going on, pushing back against uh, anti-Black uh, police brutality. Also just movements calling for, uh, well, there's definitely a diversity in the demands going. But again, like just to mention this casually, it's just surreal where we seem to be coming back to the same impasse. You know, like police departments, politicians, especially as we see from the right, just trying to gaslight these movements and smear them as being radical leftists. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to tie that into uh, our discussion today on politics in Canada. Yeah. But yeah, thank you for asking. Things are going all right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it <laughs> it's true though. Um, you, I I do think that uh, conservative politics are on an upswing right now, particularly in reaction to a lot of these um, protest movements and the the kind of outcry against anti-black racism. Um, you can even think of the way uh, we talked about this, Alex and I talked about this in the last episode, that there's this kind of profound mismatch between the calls to defund police on the one hand and the Democratic Party running, uh, you know, a, a an infamous prosecutor and one of the architects of the original 1990s uh, crime bill and mass incarceration as its main ticket. There's definitely like a swing to the right there and a strengthening of conservative politics or a consolidation of the power of conservative politics, which is very much the context in which uh, this discussion that we're about to have about conservative politics in Canada um, is taking place. Mm-hmm. So, but Alex, uh, how about you, man? Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm doing well. Um, I... Uh... I've uh, just been uh, writing a bit and uh, uh, reading some um, some literature. You know, I, I re- recently read a book by uh, Candace Collison and uh, Mar- Marilyn Young, but uh, called um, "Journalism" uh, or sorry, "Reckoning," "Reckoning," uh, journalism. <laughs> journalism's possibilities and uh, or ger- journalism's limits and possibilities. Super good. Uh, it's uh, it's like trying to fill a gap in the intellectual world where 
journalism studies hasn't actually been taken as a object of critical study uh, in the way that other fields have, like science. Um, and so they kind of just take on some of the critical theory that was emerging like in the 80s in science and technology studies and kind of applying it to journalism and uh, methodologies of journalistic writing and research. So it's anyway, it's a super, super interesting book and uh, definitely worth checking out. But uh, anyway, besides that, uh, following a lot of the shit that's happening in the U.S. and Canada right now, uh, protest-wise, um, you know, we saw uh, all those protests going on in Wisconsin now over uh, Jacob Blake and uh, the recent uh, shootings by the white, uh, white supremacist Kyle, Kyle Rittenson or, whatever, uh, or Rittenhouse or whatever his name is. So um, that shit was disturbing. I had a bad dream last night about being stuck in the middle of something, uh, a, um, a shooting. So yeah, what's the what's the joke where it's like the cops should at least pretend like they're going to try and arrest white supremacists just carrying out extrajudicial killings? You know, I, this is <laughs> they're kind of showing mm-hmm. their. Uh, Showing their ass a little bit by letting that one slide, and it was mm-hmm. similar with uh, if you remember in the la- in the last big round of uh, uh, protests around the death of George Floyd, um, there was a similar shooting in in Omaha, where again the guy walked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so you know those are pretty dark dark indicators of yeah, yeah, absolutely. Headed. No, exactly, and so. Um, yeah, that that's uh, those are, are very dark indicators of where things are headed, and a lot of the I guess political discourse that's happening uh, in the Republican Party seems to I don't know it seems to be kind of mirrored in Canadian uh, conservative discourse uh, in certain ways. Yeah, so, um, you know, there's definitely some there's definitely some concern there. Yeah, and okay, I think that's a good segue into our main topic today. Uh, which is discussing conservative politics uh, in Canada, specifically because the Conservative Party of Canada has just elected a new leader uh, who is a man by the name of Aaron O'Toole. And so this week, the Canadian media has been abuzz with uh, this kind of stuff, uh, discussing who is this guy, what what is his likely path forward, um, surprisingly little concrete policy discussion. Um, and uh, this stuff has also completely blocked out from the headlines um, the protests at, uh, or the occupations rather at Landback Lane and uh, similar kind of phenomenons. I had noticed nothing on the front page of Globe and Mail or CBC, which uh, referred to uh, any of these indigenous movements going on right now and so i thought hmm, that's interesting the way that this uh this kind of story sucks up a lot of the oxygen uh but at the same time it is it is worth discussing because it is relevant to all of our lives it could impact us pretty directly you know this is somebody who has a shot at the highest office in this nation uh, in the sense that there's a real lack of uh, uh, support for Justin Trudeau's liberals right now. They've been embroiled in scandal over the course of the past, uh, well, I don't know, a few years. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, So there's a potential no confidence vote that will take place when uh, parliament resumes in the fall. 
so, you know, there, there's, there's a non-zero prospect that this dude could be prime minister within the next six months or something like that. Um, so, yeah, it's worth discussing who he is and what we think about him. So, yeah, kind of opening thoughts. What do you guys think of this guy? Impressions? Did you know who he was before we started looking into this? Um and then now that you have read a little bit, what are your what are your kind of additional impressions? It's 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 important to remember the context of this as well. <clears throat> so the our last the last episode that I was on of the popular tapes was following the election where uh, the liberals won with a minority instead of their former majority, and following that there was a lot of um, I think internal dialogue within the conservative party over Andrew Scheer. You know, as may, some of our listeners may recall, there was this internal debate over social conservatism and whether or not it was getting in the way of the conservatives winning uh, during a federal election. And there was that, yeah, if you look in the mainstream media, they'll talk, they'll talk about this, especially when talking about Peter McKay, but Peter McKay talking about how social conservatism was the albatross, you know, around the party's deck, right? So when I heard that O'Toole was in the race, I was really interested to see how he was going to position himself, and not just him, but like how all of the leaders were going to position themselves in this way. Like simultaneously wanting to be a centrist candidate who can, you know, steal votes from the liberals, right? Especially the kind of like, you know, more centrist, middle-class ones that are in the past in that kind of gray area between the liberals and the conservatives, and how that was going to balance with the more social conservative elements of the party. Yeah, no, I think that when you look at his policies, like he's very much, I hate to say this, but like the smart candidate in that way, mm -hmm. in that like he is able to kind of like, I don't know, if you look at his platform and stuff like this, it's full of like dog whistles, you know, against like communism. He's had, he's come out and said like, you know, we're not going to work yeah. with communist China. <laughs> yeah, I, I, remember, yeah. I remember reading that. <laughs> right, you know, and then like, it's just absurd, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, for for its own reasons, the fact that globally the economy is doing really shittily right now, especially because of COVID-19, and then to have more of this protectionist rhetoric coming in, it just doesn't help the global economy. And I'm not trying to I'm not out here trying to like promote or defend capitalism by being like, oh, we need more economic growth. <laughs> but I mean, like antagonizing the antagonization of China doesn't help at all. And it just feeds into the xenophobic elements within North America. Yeah, more absolutely. Broadly. And not to mention that Canada's economy is already like profoundly integrated with the Chinese economy and mm -hmm. all kinds of trades going on. Uh, yeah. Just, just to finish off that thought, it's just like, the kind of like rhetoric against China, especially when it comes from centrist, kind of like pro-economy liberals and conservatives, I find it really disingenuous because I feel like a lot of these politicians are going to be trying to promote growth. And, you know, like in many cases are promoting, you know, like free trade, are trying to like, you know, get good deals when it comes to trade deals with other countries, including China, as you mentioned before, our economies are so intimately bound up. And when you cater to the kind of xenophobia of people being like, we don't work with the Chinese, it's like they end up feeling betrayed 
again, when they, we don't have systemic change, when we don't have, you know, like the dismantling of, you know, exploitative kind of working conditions, right? When we don't have like social protections and stuff like this. I mean, I know that conservatives aren't really interested in mm-hmm. social protections, <laughs> but I mean, like, they're also interested in being able to like, you know, put food mm-hmm. on the table and not have, you know, like ridiculous costs, mm-hmm. like cost of living. Yeah. Right? And they definitely talk a big game about uh, being in it for you and oh, your I family. And all this kind of rhetoric, mm-hmm. right? At the same time though, it's funny. Cause like, uh, while they might frame it as being protectionist, through this like friend enemy friend enemy distinction between like uh the predatory communist china and like uh the working class uh people of canada um yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh the use of a term protectionist seems very uh, misleading anyway because at least uh, some of my impressions of the kind of discourse that um Aaron O'Toole, but also like Shear have been kind of putting out there has been very libertarian sounding. And I just don't consider that to be very protectionist at all. Like it's very, they're very focused on like, you know, this idea of individual liberty and, you know, what are the, what are the consequences of prioritization of individual liberty over everything else, you know, over quote unquote, like big government and, uh, you know, regulation and these kinds of things. So I don't know. I mean, it doesn't, I, I, all, all I'm trying to say is that it just, uh, it, it just sounds like a bunch of bullshit to me, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. 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 It struck me that just starting to look into O'Toole and what he's all about, that he's a bit of a slippery character, a bit of a chameleon uh, politically in the sense that, in the last uh, conservative leadership race, he ran as sort of a like a moderate or a centrist, and then in this race, he made these appeals to social conservatism and to the far right more explicitly. You know, his campaign slogan was this, uh, and I think we'll probably like to talk about that. This take oh back my Canada. God. <laughs> Yeah, which, (laughs) you know, is pretty clearly like a thinly veiled echo of Make America Great Mm -hmm. Again and this appeal to uh, a mythologized past. Um, But I think the the mythologized past that he appeals to is really uh, funny and ironic from the interviews that I was reading with him. But... I do think that that slogan shows that he's and uh, a lot of his campaign strategy shows that he was trying to make these appeals and inroads to um, like Mike was saying, the kind of social conservatives within Canada. So especially in Canada, that tends to mean the uh, anti-abortion lobby. There are these like enormous organizations who um, conglomerate voters on the basis of uh, of where politicians stand on abortion issues and reproductive rights. So there is, you know, Campaign Life Coalition and all these kind of groups. Um, and there was definitely outreach between the O'Toole campaign and uh, these groups. 
uh, which is always troubling. But then at the same time, he, when he actually won this leadership race and was asked directly about his stance on abortion, he said, he says, you know, oh, I'm, I'm a pro-choice candidate, you know, no question about it. And so I, there's the kind of glove and mail headline that I forget exactly how they worded it, but that uh, O'Toole had passed the conservative litmus test that had haunted uh, Andrew Scheer throughout his whole career um, or his brief stint as a political party leader and that he was able to answer the abortion question and just be like, oh, yeah, don't worry about that. And I will say that um, O'Toole watching his kind of inaugural speech there, whatever it's called, um, he struck me as significantly more charismatic than Andrew Scheer. And he was obviously trying to make a much broader appeal to more people. He was thin on the ground of details about what he uh, was planning to do or what he hoped to do should he uh, attain to the office of prime minister. Um, but he was really trying to use as much inclusive language as possible. You know, oh, if, what doesn't matter what race you are oh, or yeah. creed or religion. doesn't matter if you're LGBT or straight. Or an, like, or an indigenous Canadian. <laughs> yeah, an indigenous Canadian. Oh, my Our God. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, just, just kiss the flag <laughs> and um, work. Yeah, and you'll be fine. exactly. If you oh, bow down oh, and God. see yourself as Canadian, then you will oh, be accepted. Uh, but, you know, that, that's obviously... Um, a, an attempt to broaden the appeal of the party and to be vague about what their actual policy plans are in order to bring people in around this sense of um, of like a firm hand on the rudder, you know, like a competent managerial, uh, a competent person in the managerial position. Um, and I th so I thought he, he kind of sets up this contrast in that speech between um, himself and his values and the liberals who he describes as ideological. He says the liberals policies are so ideological, you know, uh, I'm not uh, the implication. <laughs> he's not ideological. You know, he's purely just like the, the good manager making the tough choices. Um it, you know, saying the liberals are only interested in looking after their uh, their friends and the insiders, yeah, right? special interests. Uh, but yeah, whereas in contrast, if you're proud of what we produce in this country, you know, and you want an ethical government, then you should be voting for me. And so I wondered what you guys thought of that contrast between this painting the liberals as particularly ideological and uh, painting the conservatives as non-ideological. Because this is something that comes up a fair bit, I think, in uh, the partisan squabbles and the rhetoric on the right. Because, uh, you know, you saw that a lot, for example, with Jason Kenney as well, where he would say, uh, oh, the NDP is so uh, strongly ideological, whereas me, I just want good education for the kids and blah, blah, blah. So what do you guys think of that, of setting up that contrast and what that says? I kind of view it as a, uh, a bit of a trap. Like when it comes to like political parties accusing the other of being, you know, like so liberals will, will criticize the conservatives for being, you know, like to use the language of one of the MPs, like misogynistic, borderlining on being, you know, misogynist, uh, you know, bigoted. 
you know, racist, sexist, you know, these kind of buzzwords, which are, which signify, you know, like real things in terms of policy, but are very, uh, are function like platitudes in some cases, ideological platitudes. And then on the, uh, on the other side, you know, the conservatives will say that, you know, the liberals are perpetuating, you know, cancel culture, this kind of like, what is it, just like a lack of respect for Canadian culture and heritage. I'm reluctant to say this word, but like, you know, le like leftists, you know, like radical leftists is the way that they'll frame it. And like, I think it's a bit of a trap, you know what I mean? Trying to get into either side of these camps. There are two sides of the same language game. And I feel like we just expend so much energy trying to like find a way into that dialogue, you know, because it's, especially right now when it comes to like, okay, like, what do you mean by cancel culture? You know, Aaron O'Toole. Aaron O'Toole talks about it on his, on his platform, like, which he released you know, on uh, the day after he won, which is like, you know, are you with me? We're going to take on leftist culture in Ottawa and stuff like this. And <laughs> I think that it's like, it's really, it's really frustrating because it, it's just so, it's just, I know this sounds so pretentious and maybe like out of touch with like every day, you know, like it's framing the conservative base as assuming the conservative base doesn't like, can't take, a, have a more nuanced discussion about what's going on. Like it's the, just like resorting to using these kind of terms these ideological terms of just being like, oh, they're leftists, they must be bad. They're communists, they must be bad. You know, like, they they align with China, you know, they're like, you know, Black Lives Matter and stuff. You know, these movements, you know, are full of criminals and stuff like this. You know, like, Aaron O'Toole's platform is full of dog whistles talking about, you know, he wants to go back to the Harper days of trying to institute mandatory minimum sentences for you know, people charged with crimes while simultaneously not really like seeming to address the correctional system more broadly. You know, like it's already in shambles. You know, we're not actually rehabilitating people, right? We're actually just making the situation yeah, worse. Yeah, and uh, he even wants to um, apparently pass like a Freedom of Movement Act that would make it a criminal offense to um, block. Uh, do uh, create blockades, you know, like the blockades we saw of ra railways and ports and stuff like this um, during the Wet'suwet'en protests. So that would be a clear attack on direct action, you know. And like, I mean, we already saw some of this talk coming from Sheer during during the blockades, actually, where he called people like radical activists and you know he called for the military to kind of intervene and like and so that's you know that's also terrible step in the wrong direction you know not that undrip has been properly adapted to bc or canada at all and canada kind of wants to make its own definition of undrip or whatever but like so o'toole very clear on the fact that he wouldn't ever want to even like consider it um mm. so that's another really yeah. he's Okay, I, I hadn't picked yeah. up on no, that. No, I, re I read that in the uh, APTN yeah. Uh, article. Yeah, I think it's funny. The idea that any of that stuff is non-ideological is really weird. Um, 
like how would you describe conservatism as anything other than a political ideology right like surely that's what it is and it it's just bizarre to me that um it's used in this way to mean only ideas and ideologies on uh on the left and especially because ideology is a term which you know marx really imbued with most of the meaning that we understand it to have today right and it's just so strange that uh that on the right it becomes a term that's really taken up uh in order to contrast with the opponent because uh I, I, I do find that odd and a, a strange kind of defense. So, and obviously the kind of policies that you guys were just bringing up there in the platform and ideas that the conservatives are putting out there are, are pretty strongly ideological in that they're aligned with a core set of ideas about um, how the world ought to be, how the nation ought to function. Um, yeah, all this kind of stuff. So... Yeah, maybe we can dig into that a little bit and talk about uh, the Conservative Party uh, more broadly and um, what kind of ideology it is and what some of the history is there. Because as Mike pointed out, one of the things that O'Toole talks about is wanting to like, go back to the Harper years. Um, this is a really strange idea he talks about this and so it seems as if take canada back as all the implication is take canada back not not to the 40s or whatever like you know make america great again like donald trump is always like in the good old days the good old days and he's talking about like jim crow you know he's he's he, he's really looking back to a time where there was like brutal and explicit white supremacy not that there isn't now but you know, uh, Jim Crow was this kind of history. And, and it seems like he's always implying that's the time that he wants to take America back to, that when it was great. Whereas take Canada back, it seems like O'Toole's talking about to what, like 2007 or something <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, it, it's, a, it's kind of absurd when you think about it. Like the idea that like take Canada back, I, 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 didn't he- I don't hear it as like take Canada back to yeah. a specific time, but like, take it back from the liberals. Yeah, exactly. Right? But the idea is like, what's absurd about that is that, you know, like take it back from the people who were duly elected by the political system that you are participating in. So it's like, it just kind of seems a little silly. And especially where like, you know, the conservatives under Harper were kind of viewed as bordering on, um, just like cutting funding to everything in order to try and balance the budget, you know, just like, you know, classic kind of neoliberal style, like governing, right. Trying to like downsize departments and stuff like this, like, you know, off offload some of these like services that are being provided to government to the private sector and stuff like this. And, you know, it creates jobs, right. For those private sectors, for, for those private corporations and companies and stuff like that. And yeah, so it does contribute to, um, you know, reduce fiscal spending. And yeah, this plays into, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm going to bring up ideology again. It plays into this kind of like framing of um, the government being like a microcosm of the responsible individual. Like, so the idea is that like for conservative ideology, the individual should 
be responsible for their own finances. They shouldn't make irresponsible decisions. You know, don't go to university if you can't pay it back, right? Work a part-time job, save enough money, then go. And a lot of the problems, and I, of course, I'm not trying to paint a, uh, a straw man argument, but, you know, the idea that the individual can overcome problems that are inherent to the economy is really misleading. And, and by kind of like not addressing wider systemic problems related to globalization, uh, yeah, capitalism, problems with our economy and stuff like this in terms of, uh, you know, catering to corporate interests and stuff like this, like donors and stuff like that, by not being transparent about those and just kind of like framing everything through the lens of fiscal responsibility, I think it sets up the kind of disappointment that we see that leads to people being drawn to more uh, radical. I, I really don't like how the right has been like having a, um, what's the word, a monopoly on these terms like radical. Yeah. And especially when it comes to radicalization and ideology, because I feel like we're not allowed to say it. Yeah. You know, like we can't say that like, oh, they're being radicalized or, you know, like by this kind of right wing ideology. By right wing, I just mean this kind of like, yeah, xenophobic, almost just like Cold War-esque anti-communism. Yeah. You know, white supremacy. Yeah, yeah it, uh, they are. It is radicalization, you know, and or at least um, it's an enculturation to extremism. And I do think that a lot of the stuff that... Um, conservative politicians are putting out there now the way that they kind of manage their image and their rhetoric is meant to have certain connection points to those more uh, radicalized segments of the internet culture and of the population uh, at large you know like when he's talking about cancel culture like that's explicitly like a call to like oh you guys who are in this particular kind of uh um, digital network who hate leftists and so on, you know, you uh, come on side with me. And uh, even though I'm presenting this kind of magnanimous face that, oh, there's a place for all Canadians, like there's explicit um, or rather implicit, I guess more appropriately, implicit outreach to um, these segments of the uh, public who have been radicalized uh, through these kinds of forms of online discourse and uh, so on and so forth around. Yeah. And, and, and all these conspiracy theories and, and stuff like there's this whole uh, universe of fantasy of reactionary fantasy that where uh, the most kind of active or impassioned members of like right-wing movements are the ones who are most deeply embedded into these like, um, into these bizarre fantasies and mind prisons, you know, like into QAnon and, and so on. Uh, so, <clears throat> yeah, there's definitely like outreach on the part of the formal conservative party to these groups. And that I think is really, really disturbing. And it's 
interesting the and sinister the way that it's paired with this seeming uh magnanimity and this sense of outreach to oh if you're lgbt if you're of any race blah 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 right like all that kind of bullshit okay and so i wanted to make another comment based on something you said mike uh, which i thought was bang on uh just about the the harper years and this ideology of being like the good fiscal manager um, and I just wanted to point out that actually like the Harper government um, in in reality has no r- real claim to having been that good fiscal manager. Like uh, Harper was, according to like a wide variety of economic indicators, one of the worst uh, prime ministers since uh, the Second World War. Like he presided over the least amount of new um, new jobs of any prime minister since the 1946, right? And uh, he presided over the least amount of uh, economic growth and the highest increase in uh, personal household debt, right? So according to like a wide variety of economic indicators across the board, um, like the Harper government was not actually um, good at managing the uh, economic output and uh, the the finances of Canada. So this idea that, oh, we just got to get back on track. We just got to get back to where we were uh, then. Uh, It is actually really bizarre. And if um, people would choose to have a long enough memory, they could recall that that time was not marked by uh, economic growth. It was a recession. marked by one of the worst <laughs> recessions yeah, in uh, history, right? And an extremely poor recovery. It was marked by unemployment and rising cost of living. Um, and it's not that those problems have been uh, abated under the Trudeau liberals, like far from it, but the idea that somehow if we go, oh, go back to the fiscal management of the conservatives, that that will be better is absurd. Um, and there's just, in terms of the actual uh, like empirical economic evidence, that is simply not the case, right? Um, so I think that's important to point out as well, that that claim itself is ide- an ideological claim because it has no bearing on um, the material reality of the, the e- economy. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, that was uh, a good myth to bust there. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's one of their main myths, I think, actually. So it's, it's, it's good to go on yeah. that one. Uh, but to, to to circle back to one of the things that you were just saying um, about O'Toole's appeal to a kind of radicalized digital public that can, I don't know, work towards this battle against, you know, cancel culture and these kinds of phenomena. I was watching Andrew Shear's farewell speech, and he almost, I, I almost got the impression that he was basically painting uh, anything anti-conservative as uh, left-wing media, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, and like, uh, and he even compared like the Trudeau government to the Soviet Union. So it's just like, <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so it just, uh, in my, you know, my impression of that is that it, it, it grossly narrows the political spectrum and the ability for people to even imagine 
any sort of left-wing ideas when like a fairly centrist political party is being painted as a re- like you know a left uh, left-wing party. And yeah. uh, another point I wanted to actually make is that you know he's painting all of these uh, if he, when he's making these broad portraits of uh, the media as uh, kind of all left. I wonder how much that's playing into trying to draw people more towards the types of media that uh, that are kind of aligning more with con- uh, the conservatives and aligning more with pro-conservative discourse, like uh, Jeff Bollingall's uh, media outlets, or Ontario Proud and Canada Proud and the Post Millennial and these weird, yeah, media outlets that are producing. Um, the rebel yeah exactly rebel media or whatever etc like all of these kinds of media are i don't know incredibly dangerous you know i was reading about how i think it was the post-millennial which is partly owned by jeff ballingall who who himself worked for the conservative caucus during the harper era yeah sorry just to for people who might not know who this Mm -hmm. guy is he uh, also um so he runs the ontario proud Facebook page and the Canada Proud Facebook page, that whole family of conservative activists, um, kind of viral marketing Facebook stuff. Uh, so he's in, he he ran all that, and that that was instrumental in getting Doug Ford elected in Ontario. And so mm-hmm. then uh, Ballingall also uh, is the digital campaign manager for the O'Toole campaign, which just won the. Uh, conservative election. And so as well, many people kind of saw O'Toole as a bit of a, a, a dark horse in a way, just in the sense that Peter McKay, uh, by many of the polls going into the actual election, was was uh, slated to win. Like Most people kind of expected him to win. He'd been the leader of a federal conservative uh, party in the past. So um, I think it's very interesting that uh, this kind of digital media and this kind of uh, digital conservative propaganda machinery mm-hmm. um, is instrumental in installing O'Toole, has been instrumental in installing Doug Ford. And you hear Andrew Shear just explicitly giving lip service, right? When he says, oh, you guys shouldn't read the CBC, you should read the Post Millennial. That's also a, a, something that's co-owned by Jeff Bollingall, right? Like that's an outlet mm-hmm. that is part of this me- new media empire of mm-hmm. um, conservative media production, right? So I think that that is really important to take note of and as well connects back into all that stuff we were just talking about with the kinds of – with the conspiracy theories and the online radicalization. Like it's pretty obvious that these outlets are putting out um, – clear falsehoods, mm-hmm. misrepresentations of the facts that simply uh, benefit, um, you know, conservative politicians and business and so on. Um, and I think let's not mince words here when we're talking about radicalization, online radicalization into in these conservative circles. What we're talking about is radicalization into uh, white supremacy, right? Like people are becoming radicalized white supremacists and um, – we know the connection between a lot of this conservative rhetoric and uh, the history of white supremacy in uh, North America, right? Uh, so I think it, yeah, it's just important to draw that connection out explicitly and say like that's what these media outlets do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not to say that um, other media outlets are uh, don't have bias or anything like this, but um, but uh, this 
uh, right, uh, with the post-millennial, you know, it's like uh, this, what I had read about was uh, how they, you know, they've, they've used like, um, they've like invented f fake journalists and like false stories, you know, like straight up, yeah. uh, completely fabricated out of nowhere. Like, whereas like, you know, other forms of journalism, uh, whether it's like legacy journalism or uh, um, alternative forms of journalism, you do your fucking research, you know, and like there are certain ways in which uh, your narratives are going to be constructed and, you know, they depend on your network of experts, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of these uh, narratives that are being kind of produced in this like far right uh, Jeff Ballingall media empire are very fabricated. And there was, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, this uh, event that happened in Halifax, actually, where, uh, you know, there's this protest going on and there was this video that was circulating online and that was taken up by, I, I can't remember, maybe, I think it was Ontario Proud. And they, they like cut up the video and then made it look like this, there was this protest against like the Canadian Marines or something like this, and uh, and then framed this whole story about this like Muslim woman who was like protesting against the Canadian Marines and like then she started getting all this hate mail and shit and was like doxxed by these far right extremists and shit. It was fucked. So like, you know, this is an extremely dangerous radicalizing tool. And it's worth pointing out that the digital media side of things can also help make the connection to the political economy, which really underlies a lot of these uh, political campaigns and uh, the forces that ultimately go on to form, form governments. And so, you know, back in 2018, when Ontario Proud was really big in the Ontario elections, um, Press Progress did some reporting on its funding stream because at the time, Ontario Proud was saying, oh, no, we're a completely grassroots organization. People, you know, most of our donations oh, yeah. are $100, $200. And, uh, you know, it's just average conservative Canadians who want to, uh, you know, just kill liberals and stuff. It's totally normal <laughs> and fine and good. And, um, you know, so reporters started digging behind that rhetoric and um, press progress obtained the actual donation records. And as it turns out, it's largely um, like large scale development firms and um, builders and contractors and these kind of large companies in um, like Mattamy Homes and so on in Ontario who had funded this organization to the tunes of, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so that's really where the funding stream was coming from. And that was the four, those were the forces that created um, the uh, ideological conditions through their kind of media manipulations for Doug Ford to rise to power. And in turn, it's, what we're seeing is uh, the same people who were getting that funding before in, in 2018 are getting that funding in 2020 to run these new digital media campaigns, right? Like this stuff takes money. And um, it, I, 
if if that's who your friends were before, like that's who your friends are now. Like I, you know, I haven't seen an article out yet that breaks down the way that these funding streams are actually operating, but I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that there's like a pretty clear pattern that indicates that it is these much more large scale business interests who have mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> certain kinds of plans for the way in which this um, country should be constructed pretty explicitly, right? Who are um, pushing these campaigns forward and who are the kind of main activists uh, in creating the conditions for this widespread radicalization of the populace, you know? And just to make that uh, connection again between uh, the developers, the radicalization, the white supremacy. I mean, look at what's going on in Six Nations right now. You know, what are we talking about? We're talking about a housing development that um, is slated to be built on indigenous land, right? That indigenous people are explicitly resisting, right? It's these same developers who are putting out this propaganda that are radicalizing people against indigenous people who are supporting the campaign, which says that we will not even consider implementing the UNDRIP, right? It's important to make those connections between the actual like economic drivers and then the manifestations in the political and ideological sphere. And so I, I, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit more um, about the political economy stuff there. And um, people can, if either of you guys have thoughts, uh, feel free to jump in as well. So uh, just zooming out a little bit and asking this bigger question of like, okay, uh, what is the political economy of Canada? And what are the different forces at play here that um, are want to empower the conservative politicians and so if we take seriously this take back canada stuff and this idea of like returning to the harper years um you know that gives us a pretty clear indication of what what kind of political economy we're talking about what kind of political economy the conservatives envision for um the future of this country right under harper we saw the um, explosion of the Canadian oil industry, which expanded by, you know, however many times as large as it had ever been before. Um, and there is a sense in which people associate that with new jobs and, and good jobs. But the reality is that that's not true, right? That Harper actually saw the least uh, increase um, in in jobs of any uh, prime minister since the Second World War. Okay, so it's not really about job creation, but it is about expanding um, the scale of the oil industry and the ki- and as a driver of our political and um, economic life, right? Um, and I think that this problem or this um, strategy dovetails nicely with David Harvey's theory of um, neoliberalism, where um, he understands neoliberalism as a process uh, by which a new class of global, like, extremely wealthy people um, emerge, you know, like it is a uh, restored and empowered kind of of class warfare, and so it uses the rhetoric of like good economic management and fiscal discipline in order to um, uh, 
in order to manage uh, class warfare uh, ideologically. But in reality, what's going on is that there's this installation of, of a new class of financial elites, and there is this shoring up of power in the hands of capital, right? And so I think that's really what the political economy of the Harper years was about. Um, it was about sustaining the power of capital through the kind of rocky period of the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009, right? Um, and it was building on previous Canadian governments who had uh, begun this process of neoliberalization, right? If you look at the way in which social spending has been distributed across um, the past 100 years and like which governments have uh, spent more or less on social services and so on. It, it falls off a cliff in the 1980s when um, Brian Mulroney and the conservatives uh, took power and began this really kind of jumpstarted this process of neoliberalization in Canada and rolling back a lot of the gains of uh, what you know, Harvey would call the embedded liberalism of the uh, post-war kind of mid twentieth century period, right? And so a lot of that started to get rolled back in the nineteen eighties, like under the liberals in the nineteen nineties. It was um, accelerated and accelerated, and then um, Harper was sort of the manager of this period of uh, economic decline. But there needed to be this kind of punitive power in place in order to maintain the class power of um, this kind of new neoliberalized uh, capitalist class. So I just think we shouldn't be um, uh, we shouldn't be deluded and we shouldn't be mistaken about uh, what conservative politics in this country is about at this point in history, you know, when they talk about good fiscal management and discipline, they're not talking about like reducing the budget deficit. They're talking about installing punitive measures into our society, which, uh, you know, keep the working class down and shore up and consolidate the power of capital, of uh, financial and business elites. And if you follow the funding, um, you know, you can see who's pushing for it, right? Yeah, I just think that that stuff's really important to draw out here and not to be like confused about don't get taken in by the rhetoric of, of Aaron O'Toole's apparent um, uh, kind of magnanimity and his charisma, at least up from sheer. I mean, I wouldn't say he's like a genuinely uh, charismatic politician. Like he's not like a Barack Obama or something. But like when you compare him to sheer, it's like it's possible to watch his speech. Yeah. Whereas with sheer, it's like disgusting and like painful <laughs> to like watch him speak. Like he says this awkwardness. <laughs> you know? What yeah. I'm no, saying? I I, I yeah. agree. Actually, when I watched when I watched him both give speeches, I was like, oh, Aaron Tool is so much better yeah. than giving speeches. Like. <laughs> yeah you know so it's like but don't get taken in by that stuff right like that that's very intentional that's very calculated um it, but it's it behind it is this much more kind of cynical um and much more real and large scale structural set of political economic forces right there's a few things right um like i think that one i think we're probably going to see um, there's already been like reports and stuff that have come out about the conversations between Trudeau and O'Toole and how O'Toole was 
pushing Trudeau to address Western alienation in his uh, throne speech upon the reopening of Parliament in uh, is it September or October? It's October. 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 Yeah, and you know we can't forget that during the last election there was this massive swath of land between three provinces where the Liberals didn't elect a single MP. I think like I think there was one, but no, I think that was NDP. And um, so it's really interesting to think about, you know, neoliberalism as this kind of like this process of installing a new emerging, uh, this cycle of installing new a new professional class, right? So if we bring back, bring this back to the idea of taking Canada back, it's like, well, you could see it as like, you know, a lot of like Western elites, like uh, professionals and elites within the Western provinces, but also, um, you know, Ontario and Quebec, taking it back from, you know, what in previous discourse has been called the Laurentian, uh, Laurentian elites or the Laurentian consensus, yeah. which is, you know, historically... You know, for, for those who don't know, the Laurentian consensus is uh, a term that's used to refer to the elites in Upper and Lower Canada that typically are liberal and who have essentially governed Canada since Confederation on and off, mm-hmm. right? And it was it wasn't until you know Harper where we saw this kind of displacement of power where you started to see. Um, you know, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba play a more pivotal pivotal role in determining the power center of the country, right? Yeah, literally. So just going back to what we were saying before, right? So the O'Toole government in Harper-esque fashion is going to, you know, as part of the budget is like, say, I mean, not part of their budget, as part of the platform is going to, you know, bring in outside experts to conduct, you know, uh, an investigation, but also like do audits to like ensure that government is as efficient as possible. And that's like, you know, efficiency is like code word for, you know, cuts, right? Being like, do we have to be putting this much money into Indigenous Services Canada? Do we have like, you know, especially in the night, that's just an example, Mm -hmm. right? You know, just looking back at the conservatives' track record with reconciliation and, you know, uh, formerly like Indian mm-hmm. affairs and stuff like that, just not a good track record no, at all. No. Harper, you know, Harper had zero interest in pursuing the inquiry into the missing uh, and murdered Indigenous women and girls and two-spirited people. So, like, you know, that's also another mm-hmm. shitty sign of a place to go back to. There was the apology from Harper, which was you know, maybe made out to be a bigger thing than it was, you know? Yeah. And uh, I think that was more for the party in general, like trying to, what's the word, just like try to save face, you know? And I think that like, especially when you see how things moved on that file, that was probably a good call for them, (laughs) right? To try and at least repaint themselves in a more positive light when it came to indigenous relations, Mm -hmm. crown relations. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I was going to say is that, like, you know, if you go back and even look at the Moroni years and throughout the 80s and 90s, you see a lot of these cuts to uh, 
particularly like around the the advancement of around the advancement of women, a lot of like gender based, you know, uh, research and stuff like that. Departments and committees that were set up specifically for the advancement of women. These were the kind of like areas that were really affected, you know, when it came to increasing government efficiency, right? So like it's important to kind of keep that in mind, especially where O'Toole now, like if you look and see uh, the platform and stuff and how they're really trying to like, even by framing himself and positioning himself as the, you know, the pro-choice candidate, right? Trying to rebrand in that way, especially for women, right? Um, It's important to notice that contradiction, right? You know, like to see the way neoliberalism tends to cut funding in a way that puts more makes people more dependent on the heteronormative nuclear Mm. family model yeah right so like o'toole's platform again you know this is all most conservative candidates were like this but like when it when it comes to ways to help families there's a lot of like yeah harper did this too just a lot of kind of measures that are meant to incentivize you know getting married right buying property you know and then like if you have a child you're going to be you're going to be like able to apply for additional tax uh measures Mm. for tax relief and stuff like this right we we can just gesture at the way that this is exclusionary right it doesn't help lgbtq youth non-binary folk right it's like by creating these like incentive models, which kind of incentivize a very, I guess now you can be a gay married property owning couple yeah. and you can be like a rad conservative, but like, <laughs> very, <laughs> but I mean, there's already tons of like, you know, research that's been done in the way that like, you know, like, especially like, you know, uh, cis white gay men, perpetuate a lot of like transphobia and even like yeah homophobia as well right but like and classism and stuff yeah totally Mm -hmm. and the integration of the um kind of homosexual coupling into the heteronormative marriage model um is a way of neutralizing some of the threat that it represents to that kind of more classical social order that conservatives are so attached to right and so it's like, yeah, of course they, of course they're going to support that. Like, if they have to acknowledge LGBT people, they're going to want them to be married, mm-hmm. property owning yeah. LGBT people. You know, because they're going to want <laughs> them to build those nuclear families and not have, um, you know, uh, divergent uh, quote unquote kinds of lifestyles that yeah. might involve, um, you know, <laughs> different kinds of love relationships with different people that don't fit in well to this. Uh, uh, to this kind of more model. And I think you're hitting on something really interesting there, which is that this alliance between uh, kind of neoliberals and neoconservatives um, is really about a difference of emphasis more so than it is a difference of uh, like a, a genuine difference of vision in the way that the society should be ordered. Because basically, um, you know, the neoconservative wants there to be brutal economic austerity so that people are forced to depend on the family because they believe that that will like create these conditions of which will discipline strong family bonds, which is what they 
tend to value. Whereas the neoliberal wants there to be um, these strong bonds of family so that they uh, people can endure under conditions of the brutal economic austerity, which is what they're really interested mm-hmm. in. <laughs> you know, yeah. and so they're they're complementary visions, um, and uh, that you know they want they have the same vision for the way that society ought to be. There's just like a slight difference of emphasis there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on why these why this economic austerity should exist you know so what other thing i picked up on that i thought maybe we could uh discuss um as we're kind of we're probably winding down getting towards the end here i think we've probably brought out a lot of the key um issues that we see and hopefully made a strong case against anyone uh, supporting the conservatives or thinking that this might be a nice turn or that they would be better than the liberals or whatever. I mean, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that we like pretty openly hate the liberal government and are harshly critical of it and, uh, you know, question its legitimacy on uh, a regular basis. But um, the answer to that is certainly not the conservative party, right? That's uh, just a that that's a completely false dichotomy and uh, is, you know, utterly counterproductive if you're interested in us having a future wherein, you know, the climate doesn't just collapse and uh, we all die in misery. So, uh, you know, that's important to keep in mind, I guess. Uh, but yeah, this other thing that I picked up on was um, <laughs> in Aaron O'Toole's speech, like, I just thought this was really f- funny and dumb where he talked about the way that oh the frontline workers right now during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic they must feel the way that the soldiers felt at the bottom of Vimy Ridge they must have had this idea of what a new Canada could be and shit and I was like wow that is such a weird analogy between Vimy Ridge soldiers and um, frontline workers you know, especially like I listened to that. I it's funny. I was I was at work, and you know there was um, some people had been like shooting up out back, and then they threw up because like it was bad drugs or whatever. And I had to go out and like just clean up all this vomit. And uh, you know, it's just one of those days. You're like, okay, this is this is part of the job. It's it's fine. It's just kind of kind of gross, you know. And then I, and then my 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 coworker was like, you know, when they're when they're saying, hey, like, thanks to all the frontline workers, like, that's you right now. You're literally like dealing with like bodily, <laughs> like, in the context of a pandemic. He's like, yeah. you know. So we were joking around about that. I was like, yeah, like, we're the we're the ones. Like, big thanks to us and stuff. And um, uh, so we were joking about that. And then so identifying myself with that with that, and then hearing it in the speech the same day, I was like, whoa. Like, this is so weird. And, um, I, and, and then I was like, wow, I could not, there was, a, I did was certainly not in my own mind thinking like, I'm just like a Pippi Ridge soldier. I have this vision of a better Canada. Like, like, obviously. <laughs> it's, it, it's such a funny yeah. kind of image too, because you can't really attack it without sounding like you're criticizing veterans or f- yeah. frontline essential workers mm-hmm. right? so it's like it is a really interesting kind of like uh, thing to use in a speech right yeah it, it's definitely an <laughs> it appeal kind of gestures towards both right yeah it's like i kind of like respect the legacy of of our uh, i'm not going to be trying to take down any statues yeah, so, you know, yeah right? totally <laughs> <But> I, <laughs> 
Yeah, and he he is uh, uh, he was in the military as well. Mm-hmm. Can can I bring up one thing that I want? Yeah, yeah. One interesting thing that I was thinking about. Right. So one thing that we haven't really talked about here, but we talked a bit about it at the beginning, but um, how it still hasn't. There's still no news about whether or not um, the conservatives will call a snap election upon the reopening of parliament. And this could be another topic, right? The idea of how do you um, have an election during a pandemic, right? Especially where there's so many different, uh, the case of the cases between each province is, are very are very different. And anyway, so we can talk about that a bit after, but the first point that I wanted to make was that I think it's really interesting how there's this kind of opportunity. And again, I'm going to say this here that I'm not in any way like rooting for Trudeau, right? (laughs) Or at least I'm not sympathetic towards Trudeau. (laughs) You know, I feel like it's really easy to kind of like, especially the way that like the media frames these kind of like, and I think the leaders do this on purpose, but they like frame themselves in this eternal kind of way where it's just like, oh, which dad do you want? Yeah. You know what I mean? Which big other, you know, are you going to like take on? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, but yeah, again, just kind of building off that, um, there's this opportunity opening for this, well, opportunity, yeah, this oppor- opportunity structure theory that right now, like especially where, the uh, conservatives, O'Toole is going to be coming up on the right of of Trudeau, trying to occupy a very close point on the political spectrum as Trudeau, especially where he's trying to, you know, uh, O'Toole is trying to pander, not pander, pander is a really strong word, but like cater his messaging to a more kind of like liberal kind of sentiment, especially being the pro-choice candidate, pro-LGBT candidate, right? I feel like Trudeau is going to have to kind of like do something to distinguish himself from there. And I feel like, I don't know what the NDP is doing, right? But I feel like there's this opportunity for the liberals to try and shore up support, uh, I hate using the right-left distinction now. It's been so soiled by <laughs> by leaders. But like to try and shore up support by doubling down on some of the measures that he's already introduced. You know, so if Trudeau's able to like, you know, this would be an interesting moment to try and introduce some more progressive policies, such as like UBI or something like this, because it would, well, one... I know recent polls have been coming out and showing that, you know, Trudeau is still favored by the public as being the best to manage the pandemic. Right. So there's a lot of like, I feel like the conservatives have been really uh, kind of like troubled by whether or not to criticize a lot of the big spending that has been done because it has benefited so many people. Like CERB has definitely helped a lot of people from yeah. having to, you know, uh, be poor. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, being poor. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like what's the word where you oh yeah. getting evicted? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like it's helped out a lot of people. So if they come out and are very like vindictive about that and being like, you know, we wouldn't have had Zerb, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, well, they're not gonna say that because that's just ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's like 
if a sa- if a snap election is called, it's like Aaron O'Toole is going to be seriously competing with Trudeau, and Trudeau is going to have to try and you know take a gamble on whether or not he's going to cater to the same people that O'Toole is, you know, or is he going to try and bring in more support mm-hmm. from you know people who would otherwise vote for the yeah. NDP? Yeah, right? I, and I think you can already see that triangulation happening from the part of the Liberals. Like as soon as Christia Freeland took the helm as. Um, finance minister they started talking about this idea of like the green recovery you know obviously trying to echo the green new deal and language that's floating around in more like social democratic circles you know and they brought that stuff up right before proroguing parliament and trying to bury the uh, kind of we we charity scandal right and uh, so you can already see their like triangulation happening they're like all right we're gonna bury this scandal which obviously like lib centrist types are going to care about and we're going to try and triangulate a little bit on the left because we're worried about losing some of these uh, people who are susceptible to like conservative rhetoric so i think you can already see that happening and especially like look at the trudeau governments and previously like the Trudeau campaign's election strategies to date they obviously try and do outreach to people on the left um like more so on the left than than uh, than the Liberal Party proper. Like, they often uh, talk a big game about different kinds of social policies and so on. You know, you'll remember when he ran against Mulcair, he basically, like, outflanked Mulcair on the left, <laughs> which mm-hmm. uh, was one of the more embarrassing moments for the NDP, I have to imagine. Yeah, I definitely think that that's already in play. And mm-hmm. yet, whereas uh, O'Toole is trying to make those inroads into like the Ontario suburbs, like you're saying before, where he says, oh, I support gay rights and I support people of different races. That's going to appeal to the more liberal, quote unquote, social values of people in Ontario while he feels like he's locking down that traditional conservative alliance of the Western provinces and um, Quebec. So he's trying to manage those things and make these inroads into Ontario because like that's that would be his his path to victory, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Trudeau is going to try and triangulate more on the left, bring in those people in the West who would be susceptible to that and uh, certainly maintain his power base in in the kind of suburbs <laughs> of, of upper and lower Canada. So yeah, it, it is interesting to see their strategies getting rolled out here, right? Eh? Uh, mm-hmm. it's gonna be dark it's gonna be dark i feel like i know we're wrapping things up here soon but thinking about like you know the situation in the west right now especially with oil prices and stuff like this and a lot of tools messaging is kind of catering to people who are looking for work right yeah. so he's like says he's going to cut taxes in order oh. to you know generate growth in these industries right mm-hmm. and i feel like with a message like that it's it's really hard to it's hard to compete. It's hard to, it's going to be hard for the liberals to try and push back against that. Cause you're really trying to take on, which is essentially just like a blank check idea. Cause it's so vague in terms of like how a conservative government would create jobs, like specifically, you know, like in detail, mm-hmm. like I'm not, I'm not like show me the receipts here, but I mean like, you know, do you cut taxes and is that going to translate to new jobs? I mean, 
you know. It, it doesn't. No, <laughs> <laughs> no well, but it, yeah. it, it cuts, it, it cuts no, uh, no. jobs and social <laughs> services. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the thing. Like, the government doesn't, unless the government is having, like, a works program or hiring people, yeah, yeah into, like, this government services, government doesn't create jobs, right? It mm-hmm. creates conditions for industry to hire. And so the argument there is the conservative argument is always like, oh, if there's lower uh, corporate tax, then uh, there'll be tons of jobs available to everyone. And, uh, you know, they'll use all their extra income to give it to you and it'll trickle down. <laughs> you know. Wow, I've never heard that voice before. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, point taken. No, I. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, even, but uh, like you were saying, Mike, like, if if uh, if UBI was something that was actually on the table, like that would that would actually work as a supplement to the that argument in favor of uh, creating um, jobs by cutting taxes, wouldn't it? Because at least there would be like some sort of basic income that somebody's getting if they're uh, unemployed, so they're like protected to some degree, I guess, right? So that they have a, a certain kind of financial stability that would allow them to continue to. Um, look for work rather than just be like left like in the streets like you know what i mean yeah so yeah or be hit by this wave of evictions which is happening currently so and so yeah that would be on the part of the libs like that would be a big policy that would draw people in that would appeal Mm -hmm, you know if they were to say part of our green recovery is a um some kind of ubi then uh that's that's going to have a broad appeal, I think. And they're certainly trying to maneuver themselves to make that case, right? Because you had Morneau, uh, the previous finance minister, who, uh, you know, obviously was booted due to the scandal. I don't think it's in good faith to say that he resigned because of economic differences or whatever. Um, uh, but he was very... Yeah, there's a sacrificial lamb. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the scapegoats such that uh, Trudeau can remain pure. <laughs> I don't really see, I, I don't see how anyone's convinced by yeah. that at all. <laughs> but um, he was very strongly opposed uh, to UBI and even CERB. And he was a kind of strong ideological neoliberal who d- doesn't think there should be any broad-based kind of programs and so on, former banker, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it does kind of signal a shift in direction that they would change it up. It's just the shift in direction also has a lot of sinister um, undertones because Christy Freeland is uh, a very frightening figure. And um, anyway, we don't have to get into that. But I, yeah, there's definitely this shift in the political landscape that's happening right now, um, which is really interesting and uh, important to kind of pay attention to if you live in this country. Cool. So uh, any final thoughts on this stuff on O'Toole or on the cons in general before we wrap this up and call it a day? Uh, the only thing would be that, um, again, it's important to you remember that he wasn't many people's first choice. He was people's safe second choice, which is kind of a funny tagline, right? Like Your reputation is that you were like the safe second choice. And the reason why I bring that up is that, again, just kind of echoing what Keegan was saying earlier in the episode, was that we shouldn't get too caught up in the kind of like personality of O'Toole 
and, but rather think about like what he's the vehicle for, right? He's the vehicle for, you know, cutting taxes, cutting like the quote, the red tape, you know, deregulating parts of the economy, right? I think that with Trudeau and Donald Trump, it's really easy to kind of like just fall into just a picking away of the personality and trying to find the quotes. But especially when you're looking at political, political economy, just like keep in mind the goals. What are the, what's the mission of that ideology? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, 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 yeah Mike. Thanks for uh, coming back. It's uh, really fun to do these these episodes too, where we kind of analyze Canadian political electoral politics. And I think it's it it is it's it, it, it it's interesting and it impacts us, even us. We're uh, very critical of it, right? So I think that they're 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 interesting and important to do. So yeah, thanks no, a lot, totally. Guys. And uh, also, it's always great to have you on, Mike. You know, and uh, it's uh, it's also. Uh, huge pleasure to hear your voice, <laughs> but you also bring <laughs> you also bring um, uh, really great insights into these discussions because you you know you've got a background in poli sci as well and like you've always had a very um, uh, uh, interesting perspective on things. So it's uh, it was a really interesting discussion, you guys. Like it was uh, it was great. All right, so let's wrap it there. Um, so thanks, everyone, uh, for listening to this episode of the Poplar Tapes. I hope that you enjoyed what you heard and that you got something out of it. And if you did, then you should consider uh, maybe following us on social media. We have uh, Twitter at the Poplar Tapes. We have a Facebook page. Um, or if you're interested in this discussion you want to chat, you can hit us up our email which is the poplar tapes at gmail.com so yeah thanks a lot for joining us and uh we'll see y'all next time